This is where I came in. This is perfect. Testing. 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 One, two, three. Here I am. <laughs> oh, you mad. Oh, oh. You mad. You mad, impulsive fool. Darn. <laughs> so beautiful, haunting. Alluvial fans. Over and over and over. Over and over again. It's like nothing in the world. San Francisco. Aspects of Zendiacal decadent slander. I do anything to get it back. Would you come with us, sir? Perform a world. Don't let dogs yawn. Perform a world. Crayola. Like watching TV. Totally. Oh. Totally. Oh my goodness. Totally thrilled. Let's just do it. You have me. Hi there. Welcome to episode number six of Andy's Treasure Trove. I'm Andy Moore, the curator here. It's kind of impossible today to find a quiet place to record the introduction to this week's episode because it's Fleet Week in San Francisco. There are probably hundreds of boats and ships on the bay, which I can't see from here, but what I can see are various aircraft flying overhead and buzzing the city. And um, so I've just opened the windows and it's not going to be quiet. It's going to be Fleet Week in the background. Oh, look, right now, here comes... Well, you can't see, but right now there's uh, something that looks like one of those old China Clipper propeller planes from the 30s flying overhead. Mostly what I can hear lurking in the skies over... It sounds like Berkeley or, or Marin or something. And then suddenly zooming into the city are those supersonic military jets that come here every year the Blue Angels, or as I call them, the Blue Angels of Fear and Death. Here comes one now. Well, I better hurry up and finish introducing this episode before it becomes too loud to continue. Episode 6 features Willie Brown, San Francisco's former mayor, and before that our long-term California State Assemblyman, He gave a talk recently at the Mechanics Institute in downtown San Francisco, a magnificent 154-year-old private library. I think it's the oldest library in California. It has lots of wonderful public events, too, and classes. And that's where I heard Willie Brown speak about his book, Basic Brown, My Life and Our Times. It's a bestseller about his adventures in politics, especially as Speaker of the Assembly, and his style of governance. I read Basic Brown a couple of weeks ago and found it really interesting and entertaining. Aside from his famous flamboyant ways, I think his success is due to the fact that he really is effective and creative and fun-loving, too. So I hope you enjoy hearing Willie Brown's remarks at the Mechanics Institute. But I have to warn you that it's one of the worst recordings I will have presented to you so far uh, due to the fact that I wasn't hooked into their sound system and I was sitting kind of far back in the audience and it was an echoey room and the windows were wide open and lots of traffic noise was coming in through the windows. So... You'll hear a bit more than Willie Brown in this segment, which you can consider as a bonus. I am delighted to visit the Mechanics Institute. A colleague of mine was married to my chief of staff who has his office in this building. He frequents the Institute quite often. As a matter of fact, I think he is a member patron and a full-time participant. He just wandered through a moment ago, Richard Johns, and he has told me lots of stories about the Institute. The one he didn't tell me about, though, was how many people actually showed up 
uh, for a lecture with a politician. Or something that's a lot more sophisticated. <laughs> but I, I, I'm looking forward uh, to the question and answer time uh, as we go forward. Uh, San Francisco being what it is, um, Institute is obviously very much a part. At 154 years old, it obviously has cataloged its life with the city. When I walked in, there was a couple that told me that they were originally San Franciscans. They've since moved to Burlingame to raise the children, and they're not back yet. But they gave me the history written by Gladys Hansen and a couple of other people on the first mayor ever of San Francisco mm. as a gift. And I have that, so I'm delighted uh, certainly to be here. I'm also delighted that uh, so many of you have seen fit to acquire uh, my book. Uh, someone asked the other day, you've been around selling this book now for a while. Yes, I've been on tour with this book for since the 4th of February. And they said, how's it going? Well, it's going very well. We're in second printing and headed towards third printing. They said, well, you must have been making a lot of money. No, I didn't make a good deal. Uh, I took an upfront uh, advance and didn't read the fine print. <laughs> they get everything in the world back that they can think of before you start sharing in the royalties, and they don't have to really report uh, to you what the deal is. And so I was chatting with their accountant a few days ago, and I said, I don't understand this. All these books are being sold and what have you. He said, listen, as a young kid, I was working for the movie studios, and uh, I think in about three years, Going with the wind is going to break even. <laughs> <laughs> so honestly, I'm not going to be around. I'm not going to be But it's been a lot of fun because it was on the New York Times bestseller list. It was uh, second here in the Bay Area uh, for six, seven, or eight weeks uh, on its first uh, launch. And I must tell you that uh, I have become really upset. Because the only books that were beat in my books were food books. <laughs> I don't understand. Everybody loves food books. <laughs> and when I chatted with Simon and Schuster in New York a couple of weeks ago, they said, you know, it's, your title is wrong. That if you want to compete with food books, you put down Willie Brown's diet. <laughs> I said, that's the next book. Uh, this book came about, however, was uh, on uh, Exhibit City Hall. I had been approached prior to that time by several publishers saying, we would really like to engage you in doing a book, writing about your life, the history of California in the 40 or so years that you helped have shaped the history of California as a public policy maker in the state. And I had declined to, to touch the idea. A colleague who was a reporter in Sacramento was given a commission. One year, his salary was fully paid to do an expose on Willie Brown, Jim Richardson. He wrote a book called Willie Brown. He went down to my little hometown in Texas. He, he was a right-wing, very conservative reporter working for the Orange County Register and then for San Jose Mercury, and their goal in life was to unveil and, un and show the truth about Willie Brown, this really terrible, horrible politician who shouldn't be holding public office. He anticipated a Pulitzer 
once he finished his book, because it would lead to my downfall. Well, in the first three months when he had to report in to show what he was actually doing, he spent time in my little hometown in Texas. In the first report he sent in, uh, the people who had given him the money out of the think tank in D.C. were very upset, because nothing contained in his first few pages or his first rendering evidence anything of indictable nature, anything of great criticism. It had been just kind of regular life. It had come from a regular family. There had been nothing connected with the family that was odd or for America and for a black family living in the South. They didn't like his idea at all. He had a lot of integrity. He argued with them. They said, we're terminating our arrangement. Well, by then, he obviously had made his life for the next nine months to be the book. His lawyer stepped in, and it turned out that they had to pay him. So he went ahead and finished the book. They said they would not publish it. The University of California took a look at it and decided to publish his book. I did not cooperate at all with him, but I didn't trust him, I didn't like him, and a lot of reasons. And I wouldn't let anybody that I know uh, cooperate with him. He wrote a pretty good book. There was no need for another Willie Brown book. Well, Simon and Schuster convinced me there was a need for a real book by Willie Brown 10, 12 years after Jim Richardson's book. And so I set out to do just that. However, I did a little due diligence before doing the book. I picked up the most recent autobiographies. I picked up biographies I looked at, and they were the dullest reading I've ever seen. As a matter of fact, I think I got to page five of Bill Clinton's book. I gave it as a way as a gift. It was just so tough to get through. It's probably, you know, it's probably well done. I wouldn't know if I could finish it. Nor could I finish anybody else's book. I, Led quickly back to Ludlum of Tom Clancy, um, some of the more interesting writers uh, out there uh, who were doing things that were fictional and imaginary, but far more entertaining than anything to do with these dull politicians' life. Particularly since almost every politician, in minute detail, wanted to convince you how righteous they really were. It looked like it was a petition to the Lord to let him in. And you can imagine what kind of that petition would say and what that petition would do. And so I just said, word back to Simon and Houston, said, I can't do it. I can't do this. What do you mean you can't do it? I said, I am not going to waste my time trying to recall and research every detail of my uneventful life. They said, that's not what we want. We want your eventful life. <laughs> but many of the people involved in my eventful life are still alive. <laughs> and many of the things I did are still subject to statute of limitation. <laughs> they laughed about that. They said, no, just do the book. Just do what you do. Do it the way you would do it. And I said, what is that? So why don't you just make it conversational? Make it so that it's you chatting with a friend. And that's how I decided to do this book. You know, I don't, I don't do notes. I don't do text messages. I don't do emails. I don't do any of them. Because the only clients I ever lost in my criminal practice were those who kept records. <laughs> so I don't keep any 
eat breakfast. Simon and Schuster talk to me about the books. Well, I guess you'll go back and look at your records. What records? You don't have any records? No, I don't have any records. So, well, why would you not have records? Wouldn't you want to have records to do a book? I said, don't you understand anything I can't remember? I'm going to make it up. <laughs> Period. But I really am. I'm adverse to record keeping. I'm really adverse to record keeping. I think it serves only to ultimately be used by somebody for a purpose for which the records were not originally designed. P.J. Corkery, who worked for the San Francisco Examiner and who is a very good writer, uh, got engaged with me in the, in the dialogue, and I would talk about something that happened in my life or the world of politics at random. This was not one of these things where you start with, I was born, and then you go, I'm about to die. <laughs> no, I didn't do that at all. I just, whatever was on my mind on that occasion is what I talked about, and we attempted to make it into a chapter. I would do it on tape with P.J. bantering with me. We would reduce that to print. He would clean it up, take out the book, everything, and all the other stuff that shouldn't really be there, and give it back to me, and I'd review it, and then we'd send it off to Simon & Schuster. Simon & Schuster gave us the single best editor by reputation in the business, a woman named Alice Mayhew. She became so involved in wonderment in wonder at some of these stories uh, that she would take them home to look at them over the weekend when she could pick them up, put them down, pick them up, put them down, and she didn't want to buy this at the store to see them either. So we ended up being PJ, Alice Mayhew, and Willie Brown doing this book. And when we finally got several hundred pages, Simon and Schuster took one look at it, read it, and sent it off immediately to the lawyers. <laughs> And the lawyers then got back to us and said, you got to fact check this, you got to fact check that, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you got to prove it. Now, wait a minute, I don't prove anything. So what do you mean? I said, this is my story. This is not one of these deals. I'm not writing, you know, and what might be what is, might be considered not measurable facts. I'm old enough now so that there are very few people who are going to dispute my version. Um, <laughs> so let's go with it. Now, they were resistant and really resistant. Alice pushed, I pushed, finally the head guy signed the shoes to start pushing, and the lawyers just backed off. The lawyers said, just get him to sign uh, a whole harmless clause for Simon and Schuster in place of multiple lawsuits, and uh, um, we'll, we'll let it go. So I said, give me the damn document to sign. So the guy, Simon and Schuster, all looked at me and said, you're a lawyer. Why don't you have somebody to read it? I said, what do I care about what I signed that's holding you harmless? I'm broke. So we have a lot of fun putting this book together. Then the question was timing, because they paid me a lot of money to do this book up front. They paid me a lot of money to do this book up front. And they said, how can we get it, uh, say, in a year? Absolutely. Just give me the check. Not a <laughs> Two years later, they said, is there any possibility of getting it by the election of 2008? Absolutely. We had it ready by last October which means it would have been in the Christmas catalog. They had it in the Christmas catalog. We decided, no, let's not do the Christmas catalog. Let's do it 
on Super Tuesday. So we aimed the release of the book on Super Tuesday. We put it in the catalog, and we got an embargo on shipment, and uh, Amazon.com got all over our case. Costco got all over our case. Walmart got all over our case. And when they told me, Walmart's going to buy your book, Simon, and the, and the Costco's going to buy your book. I said, no way. I'm not doing any book signings at Walmart. <laughs> 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 what are you talking about? You're going to see me in Walmart with a book splash with all the time. I guess of buyers that review and decide what they're going to take. And they said, they have taken your book. So I said, when do I go? <laughs> Torrance, California, Walmart, Willie Brown, big deal. And then uh, it was kind of interesting in that at each one of the people who take your book, like Waters or, or like the, uh, Barnes and Noble, they all want you to come at one of their locations and sign in sometimes multiples of their locations. And particularly Barnes and Noble, they really want you to do it. I ended up starting the signing of the books, booked by Simon and Schuster all over the country, and they control you on time under the contract. They control you. They are really keen on NPR and national, and I've done four different nationals of NPR, starting with the flagship station in New York, then doing it from Washington, D.C., and then of all places, doing it from Dallas, Texas. And I was asked by Simon and Schuster, of the three or four that you've done uh, nationally with NPR, which of the various persons interviewing you was most impressive? Believe it or not, there's this one woman who did it in Dallas, Texas was absolutely the, because she clearly had read the book. <laughs> she clearly had made some calls to friends around the country and said, you know, some of these things sound like it's a lunatic. You've got to assure me this guy is not totally crazy. <laughs> um, and they must have assured her because she became fascinated and we had a good substance with the book. Charlie Rose was a great interviewer oh, uh, and he did the book first, first week. Uh, it's amazing how people were pressing them to the book the first week. The New York Times called uh, before the book was published and said, uh, uh, we want to inform you uh, that our people have reviewed uh, what we should do, what we should write about in the month of February, and your book is one of the five that we're going to do for the month of February. I said, uh, when will it be coming up? So didn't you hear us? We said, the month of February. I said, I know, my book is being launched on the 4th of February. So we know you were really kind of arrogant in that you now want us to give you a date as to when your book will be written out. We don't know when it will be reviewed. Well, they were not telling the truth because they reviewed it on the 10th of February. My book was reviewed in the New York Times. And amazingly, that reviewer got it. Ordinarily, these people who review books have a formula by which they review the books. And if you don't fit the formula, they say where you vary from the formula of a standard author. 
Well, this particular reviewer clearly got what this book was supposed to be about and what we were attempting to do with this book and literally walked it through. And he said, our standard for review is totally uh, in shambles as a result of this book. We've got to adopt some other method by which we evaluate because we couldn't do a fair job if we evaluated the book by the standards. This book is really delightful and anyone will explain how much he enjoyed it and how he was passing around to his friends and he would hope I wouldn't be offended because he was sure that I would prefer to have people buy one rather than <laughs> to share it. Right. I said that to the Mechanics Institute. This is not a Linden book. <laughs> And so around the country, uh, when moving around the country to uh, do the book and talk about the book, uh, it's just been, frankly, an amazing experience for me. You arrive in a given city and a handler meets you. They're on the payroll of John and Schuster and I guess other publishing houses all over the nation. Uh, they pick you up uh, at the hotel, they deliver you to wherever you're supposed to go. You do radio, you do television, you do Mechanics Institute, you do libraries, you do college campuses, you do book clubs, and all the book club people, uh, 2,000 book clubs in New York, and one of the great goals that every author now has is to try to get as many of those 2,000 book clubs uh, to buy your book and uh, share your book with their respective members. In other cases, people want to make sure that they not only or get a shot with uh, um, one of the national news shows, but hopefully the national news show you get a shot with uh, is either um, the lady, Oprah Winfrey, or you get a shot uh, uh, with uh, one of the other big guys, uh, like Charlie Rose. Well, uh, in evaluating your book, you have to determine uh, by going back and looking and see what books have been reviewed by which one of the big people out there who are doing the reviewing at that level. And when I took one look at my book and looked at what Oprah has been reviewing, I said, this is probably the reason why I'm never going to get Oprah to look at my book. But I said, I don't think that's the kind of book Oprah checks out because uh, nobody gets raped, nobody gets <laughs> no drug addict, uh, nobody's into rehab, um, nobody is into any of the, the psychological problems that people have, or there's no incest. Not on that. This book is kind of a book that's clean by comparison to what's reviewed uh, by Oprah. And in the end, I don't want a Plymouth. Because you go on Oprah, you get the book reviewed, you got a Plymouth. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so Oprah's not going to review Oprah. We've got uh, other folk at the national level are trying to review the book. So it's been fun moving around the country on last Saturday. <laughs> Uh, the big one on the West Coast is the LA Times, uh, UCLA uh, Book Festival. 140,000 people showed up Saturday and Sunday who were interested in books. And they now have it so that it's divided in such a way that there are 400 authors. Every author in the country tries to get an opportunity to be a part of that festival. You have to be invited to be in the festival by the LA Times or by UCLA. Etc. You give it an hour of presentation uh, with a uh, commentator, and then you go sign books. And they have a tent for you to sign the books in. You're usually in a class space. I was in one of the larger ones, like 500 people, 
and everybody had reserved seats to come in. I was standing room only. It was really quite an experience. Then I go outside, and there are about, I guess, a hundred people in front of my tent waiting for me to sign. Now that was impressive as all hell. And I looked out the corner of my eye, I was, and I saw a line that looked like it was about a block long. Now I turned to one of my people and said, Don't tell me my line looks like it's about 100, 115 people to maybe a third of a block. But that thing looks like it's a block long. When the hell was that off and what did he write? He said, It's Tommy Lasorda. <laughs> shows you the level of sophistication. <laughs> What they read there. Um, yeah. He doesn't like baseball. But it was really fun. It was really fun being in as part of that. Of course, in the author's tent, all the names you know that are currently on any of the bestsellers list and what have you, most of them were physically present uh, to do their book. Either they were there because their publisher ordered them to be there, and their publisher got the opportunity to, to, to uh, uh, influence who could be selected or they were there because they lobbied somebody to get there, or actually somebody on the staff read their book and figured it was one that ought to be covered. Um, it was really just a spectacular uh, experience uh, to be there uh, as part of that effort. And so the book has enlightened me. I've been in Orange County. I've been going to Orange County four times now. Um, four times in Orange County. was in the University of California at Irvine. I was in West Covina. It's incredible the number of people who really are heavy duty into books. And there are just thousands of books. And nothing is more uh, ego boosting than you're walking through the airport and you walk past books and concessions. And there you are. <laughs> As a matter of fact, uh, at one bookstore uh, in, I think it was um, Santa Maria uh, at the, the airport, John Wayne Airport, they had my book in the religious section. <laughs> <laughs> must be God. Somebody had a sense of humor. <laughs> And, and, and so it has been really fascinating uh, to walk this book all across the country. It's also been uh, fascinating to get reactions from uh, people. Books. Nancy Pelosi uh, hosted a, a, a book signing for me, a breakfast book signing for me, on the third day of the release of the book uh, at one of the rooms in, uh, in the Raven Building. Uh, and loaded with Congress people. And I noticed that every one of them took a book. But for whatever reason, they read them from back to front. <laughs> <laughs> every one of them went to the back and see his name. And I learned that about a book. Throw names in that don't even count. So that people will buy it if their name is in <laughs> <laughs> It may say nothing about them. And then the other hand, friends of mine who served with me for the 40 years, sometimes during the 40 years, and people that I had social relationships with, what have you, I've got nothing except complaints about the fact that they're not, not that they're in there and that I said anything tough about them. The fact that they are not in the book is what has annoyed. Oh, I, I was part of your life. I did this with you. Yeah, but I don't remember that. <laughs>
thank Laura Shepard of the Mechanics Institute for allowing me to visit there and record Willie Brown's talk. I'll post a link to the Mechanics Institute's website on my website in this episode's program notes, and I'll also post some photos and videos of Willie Brown's talk that you just heard. Join me next week for Episode 7, and thanks for listening to Andy's Treasure Trove. Please tell your friends about the show. Now cover your ears, here comes another jet. Thank you.